0: Today's guest on the podcast is Erin Carlson. She's the author of the new book, Queen Meryl, as in Meryl Streep. That's right. It is a book about the amazing Meryl Streep and all her roles and all of her glory. But Erin and I had a great conversation about writing, about venturing into a novel, wedding planning, and the art of hustle. We talk about movies that Meryl Streep is in, from The Devil Wears Prada to Bridges of Madison County, and one of my favorites, the probably lesser known One True Thing. But we have a great time just chatting about Meryl Streep, about writing, and whatever's coming next. So I hope you all follow Erin Carlson. She's Erin Lee Carlson on Instagram, and her new book, Queen Meryl, is sure to be a bestseller. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast with Meredith Atwood.
1: We all have the same 24 hours each day, and it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success.
0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. Today's guest Aaron Carlson.
1: Hello. Hi, Meredith. How are you? I'm good. Very caffeinated. <laughs> me too. <laughs> me too. I'm sitting here like, gosh. <laughs> How yes. many cups of coffee do you drink every morning? Okay. So
0: I don't even think mine can be called cups because I have the giant 32 steel, like stainless steel tumbler that I filled with iced coffee, ice, and coconut milk. And I'm on my third. So that's like, I don't know, 70 ounces of coffee
1: coffee oh man that'll fuel you throughout the day and that's a great combination coconut I need to like incorporate that in my morning routine oh yeah it's awesome but I have been
0: going this is like hour seven and I promised my daughter I'd take her to a concert tonight so I'm just gonna keep going you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) can't stop now can't stop now can't stop can't I'm super excited to talk to you for, so we have the same publisher, which is how we came across each other, but, and your new book that's coming out is about Meryl Streep, who's like my favorite person on the planet. So there's that. But then we just, we got a good click going. I just think like, you're really cool. And I think that my audience is going to just adore you. So there's that. <laughs> well, thank you so much. To caffeinated people. Um, likewise, likewise. Yes. So writing, how did you get started writing? Like, did you love to write as a kid? Or were you going to be a doctor and made an about face? Like, what, how did you become a writer?
1: Um, well, I have always just had this urge to express myself. And, um, you know, in high school, I would write down all my feelings in my diary. And then I was like, Oh, maybe I should join the student newspaper. And then I was like, wait, you can get paid for writing. Maybe I should become a journalist. Right. So I went to the University of Illinois in Champaign, Urbana, and I majored in journalism. And I wasn't ready to become an adult yet. <laughs> so I went to graduate school at Northwestern for um, magazine publishing, which was a year program. And then I was going to move to Chicago. Uh, and, you know, maybe one day work at the Chicago Tribune and just work myself, you know, work my way up, uh, to becoming a top journalist in Chicago. A very serious writer, right? A very serious writer. Right. And I was going to cover crime and city (laughs) politics. And you were going to have a little notebook in your pocket. Yeah. I was going to write. I was going to be like, um, Mary Tyler Moore. Right. Me too. Yeah. That was my, um. That was my ideal. And then um, at Northwestern, I just discovered I am obsessed with pop culture and television, movies, and maybe there was another route for me. So just through professors, I got hooked up with, um, with the editor of TV Guide who was an alum, you know, the alum networks. So I got a job at TV Guide right out of grad school and move to New York City, which is a very difficult, challenging, um, wonderful place to live in your 20s, right, (laughs) where you can make a lot of mistakes, but also learn a lot too, and um, meet incredible people and have these incredible rarefied experiences that I didn't get. growing up in the far Western suburbs of Chicago, which I love, but I got another experience and I then started writing for the Associated Press on the arts and entertainment desk. So I was covering movie premieres, um, uh, did a bunch of celebrity interviews, which um, some were legendary and some were terrible. So I learned, I learned how to have no shame basically. (laughs)
0: And did you like learn how to not get your feelings hurt early?
1: Well, it's funny, I am still extremely sensitive, but I, I was even more so growing up and also extremely shy and socially, socially anxious. Uh So it doesn't make sense how I would push myself (laughs) out of my comfort zone (laughs) over and over again, even though I was just dying inside, like, I, I'm a, kind of a massive introvert, I unwind by being alone, I enjoy solitude. And I get shy around people. I was even a little nervous before our podcast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm nervous about my own podcast. I could be sitting here <laughs> talking to myself. And I'm like, Oh, no, it's Yeah, I get it. It's like, but, we have parallel you know, lives. Yeah, for sure.
1: There's this whole like mantra going around. Um, I think it's been around for a while. Like, do something every day that scares you. Right. That's been you're, my life mantra. You're like, I
0: wake up and talk to people every day. Right.
1: But that's, that's the scary. reason for, I think, whatever success I have is because I um, will make myself do something that I'm nervous to do. <laughs> so when you think about
0: doing something that terrifies you do you have to go through the process of saying, okay, what's the worst that can happen? Or do you just say, this is going to scare me and I'm just going to do it.
1: Um, Both. I think that, um, you know, dealing with social anxiety and, you know, all of the mechanisms I've learned to cope with it, because it doesn't go away. I know that, um, I know that, you know, the, outcome is going to be a lot better than um, what I expect. You know, it's like this kind of fatalistic attitude, like, oh, it's going to be um, it's going to turn out terrible, I might as well not do it. But I know rationally, that's not true.
0: Right. And that's interesting, you say, I know, it's not going to go away, because that it, it, it doesn't ever go away. It just gets a little bit more routine. Like, you get used to putting yourself out there, but the fear never really goes away.
1: No, you just learn to manage it. And um, it's just telling yourself rationally, you know, putting myself out there, um, you know, it's it's not going to be, uh, what's the worst that can happen? The worst c- that could happen w- is maybe somebody doesn't like you. Maybe they unfollow you on Instagram. Um, maybe they write something bad about you Good Goodreads or something. Mm-hmm. Um, however, those people aren't your friends. Those people, uh, those people don't matter in the long run. So just ignore them and keep doing what you're doing. This is what I tell myself every day, Meredith.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm like writing it down. I'm like, okay, I'm going to say this. To, yeah. It's so true, though. I mean, it's so true that we have to, and the way I rationalize it is like, okay, a million years ago, and I'm really bad with history, by the way, Um, a million years ago, this would be fight or flight saber tooth tiger situation. And you're just wondering if these people like you, like, put it in perspective, your fight or (laughs) flight is not even real. (laughs) Right? You know, but we're still wired to feel that. Oh, my God, we're gonna die.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, it's that whole like, survival mentality. But like, what am I, you know, it's, it, I'm not running away from a saber tooth tiger. I'm just deciding whether to promote my book on Instagram. <laughs> it's still hard for me. Right. And my husband is like, Aaron, like, he's like, what would a white man do? That's so true. A white man would just be like, yeah, I'm going to post this with some hashtags. So I've been doing more of that lately, and um, of Jesus, we're going to ask
0: what would a white man do in some circumstances? In some right,
1: <laughs> and you know they would. You know, a lot of a lot of men just don't even think about it, and you know I'm just in my head. So so my life journey is to continue to push myself to do things that. My head isn't, you know, isn't telling me to do, how am I, am I explaining this right? No, no, totally, totally. My social anxiety. Yeah, no, and I get it. And
0: it's also really hard. And I think social media culture to continually put ourselves out there, even when we don't feel like it, because that's what I struggle with. I mean, I think my niche is kind of, you know, speaking the truth about myself, and then people relate to it. Um, but sometimes I am hating myself so much or I'm just in like the doldrums that I'm like, I don't want to tell anyone about this. I want to be mad by myself (laughs) and I hate everyone. (laughs) And, you know, but then I've noticed when I just kind of share that on social media, then I can tell like the people that really do matter to me and the ones that come to support or the ones that go, yeah, yeah, me too. I've been there. And, and that kind of renews my spirit. But then when I try too hard and it's fabricated in some way, or, you know, that's when I get the hate. Because yeah, <laughs> it, it's not yeah. real. Yeah. And I don't mean to not be real. I'm trying real hard,
1: <laughs> you know? Oh, but I think like, I mean, um, if you post anything like that, nobody can tell because you, um, everything you do is real. And it's, it's, and. Inspiring. Well, sometimes I'm
0: trying real hard and I'm like, really, I just want to tell you all to unfollow me and I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it's, it's hard. It's hard to be real all the time. But I think that's how I kind of my point being, I think I get through social anxiety by just saying, okay, you have to do this because it's true. You know, right now you feel yeah. this way and it's true. And as long as you're being true to yourself, then then yeah. everything else is, you know, it doesn't matter.
1: And, you know, exactly. And it's refreshing to follow um, you and people who are willing to be real on social media. I mean, that's why we follow you, because we know we're going to get the truth and something straightforward. Right.
0: And something ugly
1: sometimes, too. (laughs) I mean, right? Who wants to look at pink walls all the time? Nobody. 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 The era of the pink wall is over. That's right.
0: (laughs) we are knocking those walls down forget it <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh, so you recently got married yes congratulations right yes thank you yeah that's <laughs> <laughs> a good thing right yes so how was how was that i mean i got married so many decades ago at this point like how was wedding planning and all that
1: um wedding planning was i'm not even going to lie it was It felt like a third job because during the day I'm an editor for a super regional magazine in San Francisco called the Knob Hill Gazette. We cover life and society and culture in this crazy city (laughs) we call San Francisco. And then, you know, in my off hours, I write books. So my first book, I'll have what she's having, um, you know, told the story of Nora Ephron and her romantic comedies. So behind the scenes of When Harry Met Sally and Sleepless in Seattle. And my personal favorite, You've Got Mail. And then my second book is Queen Meryl, which goes behind the scenes of Meryl's movies from The Devil Wears Prada to Sophie's Choice. And I had to plan my wedding at the same time I was researching and writing Queen Meryl. And then working my day job. Right. When's that day job. Yeah, that's that's three jobs. It's 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 three jobs. And I was like, wait, I'm not getting paid for this third job <laughs> the wedding planning. So I felt um, a little disconnected because people were talking about TV shows. And um, like I recently caught up on the first season of Big Little Lies because I wasn't able to <laughs> watch TV for about a year. Uh, or read other people's books or, you know, I just didn't have any free time. Right. So the wedding was wonderful. I did enjoy the planning that entailed, you know, tastings. Like we flew down to (laughs) Springs and like did the whole, um, you know, um, what is it? The horse and pony show, the dog. Uh, I think it's a dog and pony show, but Why? But why? I don't know. I don't know these things. So that was kind of fun. Um, Venue scouting was fun, but yeah, the whole um, uh, guest list and seating arrangements and um, different family social dynamics, uh, as a people pleaser, that was less fun for me. <laughs> oh, you do need my book. <laughs> I, I it's definitely for me. I chapter know. Six, well, it it
0: was chapter 11. I don't know where it moved, but there's a whole chapter on people pleasing.
1: <laughs> How did you get over that? Oh, my gosh. I'm <laughs> still
0: not over it, but I know the path forward, I think, is what what I'll leave it at. Because it is... It is really a it is a thing and it is hard to get to the point where you're like, yeah, I don't care what you need. I need to be mm-hmm. sane. And I think when you sacrifice yourself enough, you'll hit a breaking point. And so like with my book, I'm trying to prevent that breaking point from happening in other people the way it happened to me.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. It and is it's like, now I don't now I'm like interviewing you. <laughs> with um, it's a terrible habit that I have. No, but like, what would you your, have to do it? It's the
0: journalist thing in you.
1: Oh, I, I wish I could deprogram myself. No, it's fine. That's called what conversations. Was your, what was your breaking point? Um, or can you talk about it yet?
0: Yeah, I mean, I can talk about it. It just all came at once. It was, it, I call it in the book, the year that can kiss my ass. <laughs> and it was the year of 2017. And that year just sucked. Like I watched everything around me, besides my health and family, like, so the main things that are important in your world, health, family, you know, that stuff stayed intact. So I don't want to act like that fell apart, which is probably the only reason I'm still alive, because I had that grounding. But every single other thing in my life crumbled. My personal relationships with friends, I thought were friends, business partners, everything just fell apart. And I was kind of left with this rubble. I was like, wow, what do I do with this? And then I'm like, my life looks like a yard sale. It's like I'm, I've got a million things I'm offering people and I'm selling it all at discount prices at the expense of my soul, which was really expensive. And so I, I and I'm like, why am I doing this? Because I want people that don't even like me to like me and that people I don't even like. I want those people that don't I don't like to like me. Why am I doing all this? And so it kind of started that inquiry. Like I had a few people in my life that I absolutely hated. I did not like anything about them, but I cared deeply that they liked me. And I thought, okay, that is nonsense. And so that's where the nonsense inquiry started. I was like, that is crazy. That is nonsense. What if I get rid of that nonsense? What if I get rid of all nonsense? This is the year of no nonsense. Like that's kind of how it started. And I was like, if I get rid of all the nonsense in my life, the people pleasing, the binge eating, the, you know, and I have this huge list at the beginning of the book, that's just like, um, word vomit of types of nonsense. And we all have different kinds of it. It's like, what if we choose to just live a year with no nonsense? What does that look like? And so that's how it started. And people pleasing was one of them. People pleasing people that didn't even matter to me. (laughs) Like, what kind of insanity is that?
1: Yeah, like, uh, I have that. Yeah, I cannot wait for your book. Um, it you. is going to reach. I think it's going to reach and help a lot of people because um, a lot of a lot of us are afraid to extract toxic people from our lives because they've been in our lives for so long, and yet we seek their approval even though they hurt us. Right, and that's that's difficult, but also you know, aspirational.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a big, and, and I don't think it's so much, how do I extract these people as, which that's definitely a part of it, but coming to the realization that these interactions with people are actually harming me? And why would I allow something to continue to harm me? And it's because somewhere along the way, someone told us, you are not this or you are this or you'll never be this and we have adopted that belief and then the way we react and act with other people just enforces that toxic belief in our that we have about ourselves and so it's all tied into what core values and core beliefs are we carrying around that the harm that the other people are doing just provides evidence that you're a piece of shit it provides evidence that you'll never be worth anything you know so we build this whole world around nonsense and so once you start to strip away some of the external easy stuff I call it the truth onion once (laughs) you start peeling the crispy stuff and get deep down into the stinky core of it that's when you're there and that's when you can really start to change and so I'm super excited about the book but I'm also terrified because it is very like you think Instagram is vulnerable (laughs) this book i told my husband i said i hope it's a bestseller cuz then it'll be worth it but if i told all these stories for just like 4000 people it's bad
1: <laughs> it's oh bad. no <laughs> you know but there are, but there are 4000 people who will be like hell yes this is what i need to this is I what know. i needed to hear i know i know i hope you know you never
0: know you know you're an author but how's that first book i mean how was that process for you like what made you say I'm going okay I'm, I'm a journalist I'm a writer I'm now going to write a book
1: um okay so I felt like I was doing the same thing like I was at this point I was freelancing <clears throat> um for pretty good places you know Vanity Fair um you know Glamour um NBC's website, (laughs) like big brands, but I felt like there, I felt like I wasn't growing as a writer because I was covering, um, the same celebrity news, um, entertainment news, the same celebrity scandals. And I was at this point in my life writing clickbait, you know, we had to write those SEO friendly headlines, and it wasn't so much about the quality of the content. <clears throat> so I wanted to find some way to focus on my writing while also, um, you know, get paid. Right. <laughs> and it's hard. I, right. And I'd <laughs> always, I was thinking again about how to um, survive as a writer and keep doing what I love to do on my terms and again this is where my anxiety is a positive because i'm constantly like trying to figure out ways to survive in this environment of massive digital disruption where journalists um are now they've become content drones in a way writing clickbait and i and i was scared to become that and um So I decided to write a book, but in my head, I was like, books are something that other people do. Right. (laughs) Like there's no way this could happen for me. Um, Books are good things that happen to other people. So I hooked up with my friend, Jennifer Armstrong. She wrote a book called Seinfeldia, which was a bestseller. And she specializes in books about pop culture. So you had a writing class, a nonfiction writing class, that taught you how to write a book proposal. And this is different than fiction, and you know right. this. But if right. you want to write a memoir or a nonfiction book, you've got to basically write a book to show the publisher that this book could sell, to try to woo them on it. And every Sunday for a consecutive six weeks, I spent half the day writing different parts of this nonfiction book proposal. So about the author, I wrote my, you know, um, my little bio and um, table of contents, Um, then like about the marketplace. So which books did I see that were competitive with mine and how would mine be different? So you're writing a business prospectus to potential publishers and it was easier than I thought. Right. And then by, by the, When you were done, were you like,
0: was this all it was? Because that's how I felt.
1: Yeah. It wasn't really in my anxiety addled brain. It wasn't nearly as ominous as I envisioned. And I wasn't procrastinating anything for the first time in my life. I was doing it. And and it felt good. And then I would give uh, Jen, she was my mentor. I would give her... Like uh, my about the author section, she would read it, then send it back to me for feedback. At the end of two months, I put all of that stuff together into a nonfiction book proposal, sent it out to some agents I had researched. Within 24 hours, I was signed to an agent. Two weeks later, I was flown out to New York City from Chicago to meet with, uh, I want to say, seven potential publishers a week after that, Pichette bought my book. I'll wow. have it coming. Wow, man! I didn't get to
0: fly anywhere. I'm going to have to have a talk. I know, right?
1: <laughs> but same. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I oh, think that, that was, was unusual. Fast. I think that was unusual because Jen was like, you know, I didn't fly anyth- anywhere when I got my first book deal. <laughs> no, you had a good agent. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, Daniel Greenberg. He doesn't mess around.
0: That's amazing.
1: But that was like, uh, so I had this book deal and it was just incredible for me because I, for the first time, I didn't, I wasn't worried about it. I was just doing it. Right. If that makes any sense. It makes total sense. To your anxious (laughs) listeners out there, it (laughs) will make sense. (laughs) Yeah. It, It does
0: make sense because- That's the big unknown, I think, as a writer. When you are putting your stuff out there and you're like, will anyone like this? Will anyone take it? And then someone does. You're like, wait a minute. Now I just have to do what I know. Now I just have to do the thing I said I would. And I can do that. I do deadlines all the
1: time. Exactly. There were so many deadlines. And I love deadlines. Yeah. (laughs) Like, as somebody who started out in news, there's something I can... um, you know, understand, like, I need that structure, I need to know that, um, you know, there's a specific date, if there's a specific date where you need something from me, I will send it into you. And you will have it then. And I think that's also why I might have gotten my second book with Hachette, because I'm pretty reliable. <laughs> and that's my thing, too. So I got signed to two
0: books in one year. And I'm like, I'm going to make this so easy for them that they're going to have to buy my third book. (laughs) I mean, I've been like so agreeable and so timely. I'm like, I'm so easy to work with. And I don't even know if that's true or not. But that's what I tell myself. Um, It's like, oh, if you just if you hit your deadlines and you make it easy, then they'll love you. And but then I'm like, am I just
1: people pleasing? (laughs) No, no, that's I think about this like every day. Yeah. Um, Because it's like, um, could you write the publicity memo for Queen Meryl? And um, I love my publisher, but I was like, "Am I supposed to be doing this?" But then I, but then I also want to do it because I feel like I can tell the best story to right. potential edit, you know, editors who would potentially um, accept the book in their magazines. Right. So yeah, but I think that's another thing is that um, publishers love to work with writers who are easy to work with. Sure. So I think that's another, you know, secret to my longevity.
0: Right. <laughs> I write right. Also, you you bring something to the table. I mean, you, you know how to write about what you need to write about. And then whether that's yourself or a press release, like you're, you're like, you're competent. And I don't want to say that other authors aren't competent. But when you have someone who doesn't have a background, and they're just suddenly a writer, it's probably difficult for the publisher. So it's like a breath of fresh air when they have someone like you.
1: Um. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> just say thank you, Erin. <laughs> thank you.
0: <laughs> so your book, I'll Have What She's Having, how so when when was that published that was what 2014 is that or it? um
1: yeah it felt like 2014 I feel like it's been out for 20 years Um, (laughs) but really um uh August 29th 2017 okay so so two years ago I know I treat my books like children so I was like oh she's gonna be two (laughs) in two months so um yeah, but it feels like it's been out longer. And um, that was a really, really rewarding but hard book to write. How so? <laughs> because I overwrote it. Um, I did way too many interviews because I, I'm just overachiever. And I just did too much. So mm-hmm. that book, the first manuscript, was Five hundred and fifty pages, wow. uh, and I was like, "I'm going. If I'm going to write a book about these um, overlooked romantic comedies, you know, written and directed by, you know, the most powerful and underrated female director in history, I'm going to do it." And what <laughs> I mistook, um, I think, page count. <laughs> Right. It's like a thing for me. Right. So Hachette was like, uh, wait a second. No way. Um, your contract said like 278 pages. You need to go back and cut half this thing. So in winter of 2016, I had just started, um, uh, my editor job. I had to go home every night and cut, just cut 250 pages from this first (laughs) manuscript and it was difficult yeah but when I you know at the end of the day that's what editors are for Hachette has great editors and they helped me shape (laughs) (laughs) this kind of bloated book full of extraneous characters and people I interviewed that I felt bad about not including because they gave me like four hours of their time. Right. Hachette was like, Aaron, you don't need to include those people. And uh, they're not part of the narrative. You need to focus on Nora Ephron, Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, those three people. Those are your main characters. So once I figured that out, then um, I was able to turn in, I think, what, I've, what I felt is a pretty good book that a lot of people like, and I'm still kind of shocked that people read my books. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I have a joke about this. I was like, I just got a very nice email from somebody who read my book and loved it. And wow, somebody read my book. She's like, yeah, yeah, that can happen, Erin. And I saw my book on um, busy Phillips nightstand on Instagram stories Oh, wow. And she's like the queen of social media. And I was like, my book is on Busy Phillips Nightstand. So, of course, uh, I was like, what would a white man do? They would post that on Instagram. So I posted the screen grab of Busy Phillips Nightstand. No shame. And my friends were like, you should make that your LinkedIn profile. (laughs) Right.
0: That's amazing. That's so amazing. You know, I feel that way, too. Every time someone's like, oh, I love your
1: book. I'm like, you read it? (laughs) The triathlon book. You read it? And And tons of people did. Uh, And it won awards. But you're like, it won an award? (laughs) (laughs) It got an award? Didn't it get a gift certificate with it?
0: Right. Oh, And then my husband was in so we were in Kansas, just recently living there. And he would go to the bookstore, like all around Kansas. And every time he would see the book in the store, he'd take a picture of it and send it to me. And I'm like, Oh, that's great. And then apparently he and the kids went to the bookstore over the weekend. And he texted me a picture of a a bookstore here in Massachusetts, where we moved. Um, The books were in there. And I was like, Oh, well, that's great. And, but it was in my mind, we were still in Kansas. And I'm like, why is he sending me a copy of the, a picture of these two books that are still on the shelf? That means they haven't sold any. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, this was in a different state, Mayor. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm an idiot. You know, but you get this like, I still like when I see my book in a store, I'm like, well, that's not mine. Like, who thinks that? Like, we it, got <laughs> to be, some, there's something wrong with us.
1: I <laughs> know. Uh, and this is why I need to read your new book. Like, I seriously cannot wait for it. I can't wait for it Uh, either. This is 11
0: and everything else. You know, what's so crazy though. Cause this is another thing we can talk about is how slow the publishing world is. But then when you (laughs) get going, like I, this book is out in five and a half months and I'm like, that is so close. That is like tomorrow where before I got in the publishing world, I, that was an eternity, but that is like tomorrow.
1: Oh, my gosh. Uh, Yeah, that is, that book is going to be born, like, tomorrow. (laughs) And uh, Queen Meryl, September 24th. That is super soon. I am going um, out of the country (laughs) for the first time in, like, four years. On Uh, pub day? I'm I'm going to Italy first week of July. Never been to Italy, but I'm afraid something is going to happen with my book. Stop it. (laughs) And then I won't be there to respond, like, I will be your a proxy. I will oh be my your proxy. God. I'm gonna forward all emails to you. <laughs>
0: Seriously, I would love to I will handle it. I will be like, Aaron here, how can I help you? Um, oh, the best movie was
1: Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> oh my god. That so that is actually my chapter eleven. Oh. The best chapter of my book. Can I state am I allowed to say that as an author? Um I think so. Your favorite chapter? Yeah. That's
0: not in the contract that we can't say that.
1: Well Okay. That's not an, yeah. So I initially wanted to, cause you and I write, have the same contract. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. <laughs> I initially wanted to write a book just on the devil wears Prada, but my agent was like, Oh, it's too soon, too soon. So I think people who love devil wears Prada will be very pleased to find out that that chapter is supersized. Nice. <laughs> it's Such like a good movie. Right? It's like twice as long as the other chapters in the book. Um, (laughs) But it's it's a fantastic movie. And what's interesting, too, is that Meryl, uh, of all of the movies, she's done like 60 movies. And I watched them all chronologically (laughs) during the research phase. Some were not good. Mm -hmm. Others were fantastic. But, oh, there were some duds um which I do write about like this isn't this is a glowing tribute to Meryl but I am honest as well about you know m- movies that I'm sure she would agree were mistakes the devil wears Prada wasn't one of them and um she of all the movies that she's done she said that men will come up to her and um say you know I love the devil Wears Prada. I really identify with this character. And it's, the, it was the first time in her life that a man had come up and said, Oh, I just identify with this character, what she's going through all these decisions that she has to make, um, you know, leading uh, a company and not being the nicest <clears throat> and, um, just being so committed to the company's success. And um, yeah, Meryl was quite shocked by that, that, uh, that a lot of men um, love that movie and saw themselves in Miranda Priestly. Right. Because they had never seen a, you know, a lot of, can I say this?
0: Yeah. Um, I don't know what you're going to say, but say it.
1: Okay. (laughs) Okay. I'll say it. Um, the devil wears Prada is competence porn. <laughs> yes. And it's one of the first times we've seen, and we, every woman I know is like this. Every woman I know is uh, more competent than her husband um, is juggling you know, work and, um, the kids or, um, domestic life and so on and so on and so on. And just doing it, um, so successfully and, you know, it's inspiring as hell. And Meryl, I think Meryl when Meryl, what am I trying to say? You can edit this. Um, (laughs) I'm trying not to offend the men who might be listening. Oh, that's okay. They're always offended. (laughs) Um, but I feel like, I feel like this was Meryl's tribute to strong, to strong women in the workplace. Yes. And this is a character that we don't often see, but she's not likable. I don't think that we all aspire to be like Miranda Priestly and, insult our colleagues in terrible ways but there was something about Miranda Priestly that was uh, graceful and real like I know women like this I know women who work like this and it is you know as Meryl herself has said as the director of Devil Wears Prada David Frankel told me it's competence porn (laughs) right well and it's
0: it's it's showing the difference in the in the fact that we will accept that and not only accept it but expect it from the male bosses in our lives and the successful men but then when you you know when she's portraying that role it's somehow shocking
1: yeah and the decisions that she makes are like ooh she's a dragon lady um and criticism that would never uh you know that a man criticism that a man would never get for making the same decisions and showing that same type of leadership that Miranda Priestly, uh, cutthroat editor of runway, shows in the Devil Wears Prada.
0: Now, did you talk with the with Laura Weisberger, the author of the book, or was no. this strictly the movies? Okay,
1: no. And I reached out to her for an interview, and I was like, oh, you know. As a fellow author, she'll definitely be interested. And she's still Instagramming about Prada, and it's a big part of her right. career.
0: But she's not interested in contributing to the book.
1: No, she didn't want to um, <clears throat> she didn't want to talk about the movie. Hmm. And maybe she know, can. I I think but but I get it. Yeah, it's a might be a sensitive issue for her. Although, you know, I talked to the producers, the directors, the actors. When Lauren uh, and this is a success story. Total success story. Um, Lauren wrote the Devil Wears Prada or started writing it in a writing class. I think it was the Gotham Workshop in New York City. And she had quit vogue to work for departures it's a travel magazine she had worked for Anna winter for I think eight months or so
0: mm-hmm. and
1: it wasn't a great eight months right <laughs> so she quit you know the world's best fashion magazine to work somewhere else and she wanted to be I think uh, she, she wanted to focus on her writing. So she took the writing class and uh, she started writing the Devil Wars Prada and then her writing coach was like, oh, this is good. There's something in there. Let me hook you up with an agent and a publisher. And that book sold before she had completed it. She also got the movie rights before she had completed it. Because people were like, oh, this is... um, You know, a Romana Clef about Anna Winter in Vogue, there was something um, tantalizing about that. Sure. But what Lauren was doing was trying to write a true story about being a woman in the workplace, uh, working for another powerful woman, and those dynamics that aren't often talked about. And um, she created that character of Miranda Priestley. Uh, Miranda's you know withering that's all that was all Lauren Weisberger Mm -hmm. (laughs) and Aileen Brosh McKenna who wrote My Crazy uh, Ex-Girlfriend just a really great Uh rom-com I I think yeah they filmed um, their last episode yeah that series is done but it was so good she wrote the screenplay she adapted the book Um, and wrote the screenplay for Prada, which was so funny. But Lauren was invited on the set and um, was still very much embraced as the creator of Miranda Priestly, um, probably the most indelible boss (laughs) in literary history. Right. So that's like all you can ask for as a writer. But I understood why she didn't, you know, she didn't want to to talk to me about it because this is somebody that she created and she might think that her Miranda Priestley is different than the one Meryl created right 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 and nobody wants to offend Meryl no oh dear god no which That's- I learned, which I learned in the process of interviews for this book.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, so how did that work? You decided you wanted to write about this. Like, did did you interview Meryl, or was it like Julie and Julia, where she would not speak to you, like <laughs> Julie oh. Child at the end?
1: Um, it was a little bit of both. Yeah. So uh, Meryl ha- actually helped me fact check some of the things in the book. So I would send her fact checking questions via her publicist. And then she would respond,
0: hmm. so
1: um, that was very exciting. Yeah, <laughs> and very like oh Terrifying my god, too, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think um, many, you know, certainly myself, uh, many women my age who perhaps learned of Meryl's genius in their twenties through the Devil Wears Prada might confuse her with the character. <laughs> so right. my whole process of research researching the book going back, you know, you know, through her early films, you know, out of Africa, Sophie's choice, French Lieutenant's women, you're able to get, um, an amazing crash course in the scope of Meryl's filmography. Um, although Devil Wears Prada did, it was, um, a, pivotal moment in her career where she was able to break through the glass ceiling. Mm -hmm. And for women of a certain age, she was in her late fifties at the time when women are sort of like, Oh, they become Maggie Smith. You know, (laughs) they don't, they're, they're, they're kind of amusing character actors, side characters, but they're not the main event. But Meryl broke boundaries for that. She has always been the main event and looking at how she's been able to navigate ageism, um, the turmoil of an industry that you know now focuses on blockbusters and superhero franch- franchises and movies that can only do well in China or overseas, and less on the dramas and comedies that focus on characters uh, that she loves to do. Right. So how is Meryl able to survive for decades um and be an unlikely leading lady that um that is so inspiring to me writing this was sort of a self-help process too for me and i'm going off on a tangent no i'm just listening i'm
0: enthralled i mean i feel like you know it's like one degree of separation from meryl streep and i'm sitting here i'm like how did this happen to me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know what i mean i'm like wait a minute because i have loved her my mom i remember being probably seven and my mom said meryl streep is the most beautiful woman in the world she is my favorite actress and really? I thought who is she you know but i remember my mom saying that and i'm trying to think so that would have been like 1987 86 so was that sophie's choice like what was you know like what movie was? maybe it was out of africa um i don't know but i remember my mom just loving her and so when i on the you know growing oh you know what i bet it what i bet i bet it was bridges of madison county
1: oh my god i love that movie so oh i can't watch that movie is heartbreaking
0: oh i love it i love Uh, that movie
1: when he's out oh my gosh when he's out in the rain no no stop it and then uh the stoplight and just get out. Does she leave her husband? Get out of the car, Meryl. Get out of the car. And then he puts the cross Ugh. on the, um, the mirror. Yeah,
0: no, I can't.
1: <sighs>
0: yeah. See, that's one of my favorite, my favorite oh, my Meryl movie. That is probably the one that it's like when my husband's out of town and I want to feel depressed. <laughs> like I'm like, tonight's the bridges of Madison County followed yeah. by the notebook kind of night, you know? Yeah. Um, But also one of her movies that I love is One True Thing.
1: Oh, my God. Oh, I love that movie. And that's
0: that's uh, got Renee Zellweger, I think. And then I can never remember the guy. um, William Hurt. Is that right? Yeah, William Hurt. Yeah. Uh Oh, Oh, and that's one I feel like didn't get much press. But that's a good one. I always think back to that one. And then, of course, Julie and Julia. Julie, I never know which one comes first. (laughs) Oh, Yeah. I have a problem with this too too. Ju- Julie and Julia. Yeah. Yeah. Just because that is to me that movie shows just the incredible talent. Because you're watching that and you're like she is Julia Child. <laughs> like duh. It's It's like it,
1: it's insane. Yeah. And she basically she studied for the role by watching Julia on TV. And then she was adamant about being as tall as Julia Child was. Julia Child was 6'2". Meryl's kid was 5'6". So Nora Ephron, who directed the movie, was like, Meryl, I'm sorry, there's no way. There's just no way that uh, we can make you taller. So Meryl was adamant. So, you know, they have, you know, they worked with different camera angles, different, you know, lifts. and did all that they could visually to make Meryl seem taller than she actually is, and it's amazing she becomes Julia Child. Yeah, she was a giant.
0: Like in my mind, if I were to meet Meryl Streep, she would be six feet tall because of that movie.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, no, she's she's um, average height, but, yeah. but she she's larger than life, like Julia. And Nora had told Meryl, you know, you don't have to actually become Julia Child. This is a movie about Julie's idea of Julia Child. So you are, she wasn't saying you're a caricature, you're caricature of this iconic woman, but you are the Julia in Julie's mind. So that gave Meryl a lot of freedom. And she was So happy to be on this movie. She would go to set every day in hysterics, just giggling because she had to get herself to where Julia Child always was. And Julia was just happy, so happy and just um, radiated this joie de vivre and did not take life for granted. And what a lot of people don't know is that she was 51 years old when she went on camera for the first time and you know created her groundbreaking cooking show that taught women to enjoy themselves while cooking that uh, making a meal can be a joyous thing and you can be creative and have fun with it and she just taught people how to elevate cuisine And um, anyway, she did that when she 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 um, was 51 years old, when she um, first started her cooking show. Gosh, I I feel like the a lot
0: of the Meryl Streep movies, they're just so valuable, like they're so valuable. For women to watch, like you take Bridges in Madison County, you get one thing out of there, like sensuality, and follow your heart, and do you follow your heart, or is a duty, you know? And then you you see Ju- Julie and Julia, and and the character of Julie. I mean, I learned so much from watching that that progression. I mean, just her character, and the. I mean, Julia Child started at fifty-one. Like it's never too late, yeah. you
1: know. Yeah, and Meryl turned seventy on June twenty-second. So it's like next week. I know. We should release this on her birthday. I will do that. <laughs> um, I know. I'm like she's gonna be 70. And she is killing. do you watch Big Little Lies? No, I don't know that. What is that? Oh, so Big Little Lies is do you have HBO? Uh maybe. I'm not very I don't I'm not very T V. Yeah, you know what? Um and I wasn't for for like a year that I was doing this book, but um And that's my problem. I'm just coming up. (laughs) (laughs) But Big Little Lies is based on the Leanne Moriarty novel about Nicole Kidman's in it, Reese Witherspoon. It is so good. The first couple episodes are like, oh, I don't know if I can get into this. It's so good. And um, season two just came out. Meryl's in it. Meryl plays... uh, the creepiest character ever I won't spoil it for you
0: oh but, that sounds great you know, I you need a show mission <laughs> <For sure. laughs> awesome okay that's good see I need a
1: show yeah yeah that will be your show and you're gonna love it
0: okay I wrote it down in Meryl's birthday June 22nd
1: oh and it. it's a great series to watch you mentioned your husband is going out of town um my husband is going out of town this week. So I already have things I'm going to watch that I'm really excited about. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yes. Okay.
0: Oh my gosh. So what did you learn? What is the big takeaway from queen Merrill? Oh, um,
1: Oh gosh. Um, or the the
0: top three takeaways, if it's too hard to pin down
1: the top three takeaways. Um, what, what, what did I learn from Meryl? Um, be yourself. true. St- I know this sounds so um, generic platitudes, but um, stay true to yourself um, and don't feel pressured to fit into a box. Mm. Just when you thought Meryl uh, Out of Africa was probably her most successful movie of the 80s and people wanted her to keep you know, making money, keep, you know, taking these romantic epic roles, but she didn't want to pigeon herself ever. So she would pivot and do something kind of crazy, like (laughs) a cry in the dark, right? Which nobody saw, but a dingo took my baby. Um, It's based on true crime story of Lindy Chamberlain. Um, Really good movie. So she would do something like that. And she was always keeping people guessing. Like, you never knew what she would do next. Um, But that was part of her, I think, part of her plan or grand plan to... What am I trying to say? Sorry, I'm like... (laughs) it's you know, important. When, you know when you have so many ideas in your head and distill <laughs> them into one idea? Well, I'll just say she just always wanted to do character roles, but you know, in on her terms. So she wanted to be the leading lady, but she wanted to play the kinds of interesting you know, unique roles for women that you don't often see. Right. Important ones. Social statements. Right, Yeah, She wanted to keep uh, pushing the boundaries and, you know, thwarting expectations and staying true to herself in the process. So she wasn't the typical leading lady. She could have been because, as your mom said, she, you know, one of the most beautiful women ever on screen and had Mm -hmm. such a unique, lovely face. Uh, And it was fascinating to look at and watch. But she did not want to limit herself in the kinds of roles that she could play and that she was given and she managed to do that throughout her entire career so stay true to yourself and the other takeaway um step outside your comfort zone <laughs> yeah so Meryl had done the Devil Wears Prada and She got the script for Mamma Mia, the movie musical based on the hit Broadway show, based on the music of ABBA of all bands. Right. So crazy, right? Like what? Meryl's going to wear, you know, put on overalls, fly to Greece and, you know, try to do a musical. That's insane. She's Meryl Streep. She's a living legend. She doesn't have to do that. No, she didn't have to do that. She thought it would be fun. And a challenge, so she was accepting roles that made other people kind of wince. Like, really, Meryl, you're going to do that? Her agent even said that about her taking Mm -hmm. Mamma Mia. But she wanted to do something outside of her comfort zone, and she had never done a movie musical. She'd always wanted to do a she wanted to do a Vita, which Madonna took that role. So, you know, she was always kind of pushing herself. So that is inspiring to me right now as I'm considering pivoting to fiction. Oh, me too. Yeah, I want to try out a novel. I mean, I have so many stories in my head. I'm writing about all these fascinating, inspiring women like Nora Ephron and Meryl Streep. But you know what? They have inspired me to just get out of my own head of what I'm supposed to do in my life. Like, okay, I write books about successful, inspiring Hollywood leading ladies, but you know, maybe I should take a cue from them and push myself out of my comfort zone and try something new because I have so many stories in my head. Right. And you're considering writing a novel as well? I am. So I've
0: had I've got like six drafts started of a story um, or of a novel. And I keep trying to divert it because it's really dark. (laughs) It's so bad. and So I'll start it over where and it just keeps turning like really dark. And I'm like, wait, am I like stephen king like like, <laughs> what is this you know and so it scares me and i think it's so bizarre that i'm willing to cut open my heart and lay it on the pages of like year of no nonsense like here is me all of me i literally <laughs> leave nothing out but i don't want to write a story <laughs> like who does that like i'm terrified to write a story that's not even real Um, But that's me. That's my next step. Because I feel like it's almost worse for people to say I don't like what you made up and created than for someone to say I don't like you. (laughs) Because I'm like, well, if you don't like me, I can't do anything about that. But if you don't like what I created, I'm a piece of shit.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's no sense. Yeah. So what's your like, what's your how are? I don't even know how to begin writing the novel.
0: So there's a lot of really great courses online about, there's a formula. There's like, here is what is a plot? And I think that's one of the groups. It's called like, what is a plot? And there is a specific formula to follow for writing a novel. And, um, I am not doing that because I, if I do that, then that means I'm committed. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm really dancing around this possibility right now. Um, but there are great workshops and stuff online for how to write a novel. And then I think you just divide it into three acts and you go to town because it's like there's three acts and there's these characters and there's a turning point and a, there's a formula and you just formula? figure out. Yeah, there's a formula.
1: That, okay, this is so, um, like... Mind-blowing. It's just no, like the book proposal. I love it. If there's a formula, there's then... A formula. If there's a formula for writing a novel, and there's a structure... Yeah, just like the book proposal. Yeah. It's just like the
0: book proposal. And that's what I'm scared of. I'm scared of if I just, like, plug in... And I actually started outlining my, you know, my novel. And... I got the characters and I got the three acts and I literally just have to kind of sit down. I feel like if I spent two weeks on it, it would be done. Like it's that kind of book. Um, so, but then I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to, it's just stupid, but I guess because I'm coming off of this nonfiction thing and I don't know how that's going to do. And if everyone hates that and I to like this and, (laughs) and if I don't show up, then no one can dislike me and I can just stay small or whatever.
1: Oh my gosh. No, I, yeah. everyone is going to love your, your book. Well, <laughs> no, I do. I haven't even read it. And I was oh. like, okay, this is going to like help me in so many aspects of oh, my life so we're dealing with. Um, and then a novel, like that's just fun. Right. Cause, yeah. you, Cause you can deal with like you. So in your second book, you are like, this is me. I'm putting it down on the page. In your novel, you can deal with those themes, but, um, but, um, have the characters, have characters and you can make it a little autobiographical, but have a little more, you know, fun with it. You know what I mean?
0: we should start a club, me and you. If you and we should like set deadlines, and we
1: should. Oh my gosh, that means I'm. I would have to be committed and accountable right. for writing a novel. That's right. Me too. We set deadlines. We should create a
0: club. We should see what listeners want to also write their novel. And we should create a club,
1: Actually, <laughs> not a yeah. group,
0: a club because that sounds so much cooler. <laughs> we should. It would be like the. Um, what would we call the club? the the old spinster fiction writer club
1: even though none of us are spinsters oh my gosh let's do it (laughs) i have like three ideas too for um for for my novel how did you choose one idea well i keep coming back to it i just keep it's like
0: it's chosen me oh i've been i've been turning this story over in my head for 20 years It's one of those. So it has to get written or it's going to kill me. Yeah, it's one of those. And so maybe I just need to go on a week long vacation, because that's how Year of No Nonsense started. I went to the mountains for a weekend. And I was like, I have to get away and start this book, or I'm never going to start this book. And so I went away for a weekend and started the book. And then I sat and stared at it for six months and did nothing. But then it was there for when I was ready. And so I feel like I have to take that step. Yeah. See, I keep toying with it. I've got like maybe twenty thousand words written. Um That's amazing. Of nonsense though. You know, it's just like blah 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 blah. And then a novel's like only sixty five thousand words and I'm already over my word count if you really look at it that way. And then that scares me.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm always over my word count. That's what, that's what editors are for.
0: My poor editor.
1: <laughs> my poor <laughs> editor. You finish this, it's gonna be like on Netflix. In two years
0: <laughs> i need you to just well, be my friend to i'm just walking. gonna start texting you hey aaron i'm having a bad day and you're like you're gonna be on netflix you have yeah. the like best uplifting comments
1: well i mean like but it's diversionary because you know? you,
0: you're trying to turn it away from yourself
1: no 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 no. <laughs> no i'm like um but i i'm like manifesting this for you oh thanks
0: I'll take yeah. it. And I'm going to manifest your bestseller, Queen Meryl. I hope so. And then, then you get to have like a party with her and invite me as your plus one because your husband will be out of town.
1: I know. Right. Uh, what if, <laughs> what if I get an email from, this would be terrifying An email from Meryl on publication date. You should. What if the email said, Oh, <laughs> florals for spring ground, like or groundbreaking or, <laughs> or like, or like, one of Miranda Priestley's comic insults. Right. Uh, it's not going to happen. Why would you put that out into the universe? I know. I'm going to rescind that. I'm going to rescind that. First of all, she fact-checked your book.
0: She's not going to hate it. That's true. And I'm sure she's already seen it. I hope so,
1: because um, I left out a lot of things. Right. <laughs> right. And someday I feel like my... Um, my inspiration for this book was the notorious RBG uh-huh. and, um, a friend of mine wrote this amazing book about Bill Murray, the tale of Bill Murray, which kind of collected people's Bill Murray sightings. Cause he's been known to drop in like at your karaoke session right, right. weddings. So I wanted to write that kind of book, but for Merrill. and, um, and I think I succeeded. It was so much fun to write. It truly was. And, um, yeah. And I I love it. I can say that. I love my book. I love her. And um, I want her to like it. <laughs> right. <laughs> if she does not that's fine. It would be super weird if, you know, if I were Meryl and I were, you know, Here in this world, and somebody were writing a book about me—that'd be kind of weird. But she was cool about it.
0: But she's not gonna Julie and Julia, you? No, that's too predictable,
1: right? That's (laughs) you know what I mean. That's too predictable. And Meryl also understands the whole celebrity industrial complex. Um, she knows that my book is not, um, a mean spirited tell all, right. Uh, And I have heard things, (laughs) but you know, that goes in the vault. Uh, Um, this is a celebration of her, uh, there are some warts in there, you know, I want to present a rich picture of who she is, but it's a tribute to her, I want to say, yeah, a tribute to her legacy and what she represents to women. And that's a survivor, um, an artist and somebody who is free and comfortable in her own skin while playing many, many, many different women. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned, um, one true thing, which she plays a housewife dying from cancer. And it is the saddest movie ever, I think of all of Meryl's movies. Yeah. But she was feminist or is a feminist, no question uh, because she chooses roles that showcase women who aren't seen as much on film so she's paying tribute to, you know, a woman who is a housewife, sort of like the Bridges of Madison County mm-hmm. and giving her um, an inner world and depth and, you know, turning her struggle into, as I said before, the main event.
0: Right. So it's- and the relationship of the mother daughter in that movie was so powerful.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: That's yeah. what was just because I, I, it's been a long time since I've seen it. But if I remember correctly, the daughter's like somewhat successful and resents her mother for being the housewife and for not being strong enough and vocal enough. And um, it it just all turns out to be a lot different than the daughter thought. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. And like the daughter's finally like, oh, well, she idolized her father for so long, the professor who kind of the narcissistic professor. And she didn't appreciate all that her mother did and the sacrifices that her mother made for her children. Right. So this sort of, you know, pivots on the mother and is a love letter to women like that, you know, um, from, you know, women, I I, what do I want
0: to say? I think it was like a love letter to the different roles of women and how in the very end, like, it's all the same. It's all about love and passion and humanity. And then we all die. (laughs) You know, It, it because toward the end, the mother daughter, although they were totally different, they mirrored each other in spirit and in drive and, that that's what I got out of the movie that it was, it was just the, the, the connection of women and like the yeah. circle. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, um, how, how some of the women, you know, like we look at Meryl's character and she has more strength and more grit and, um, ambition that is unseen and, ambition to keep her family together and maybe that's not the role that Renée Zellweger wants because um she like me is a workaholic right. who whose work defines her but there are, um but she comes to appreciate the sacrifices that her mother made and that her mother had a full rich life too and that you know yeah. she had a valuable life it was a different life but it was the role um that was expected for you know for her and uh for people who haven't seen this movie go see this movie yeah i know they're like what
0: because it is a while ago i mean that's probably 15 years yeah. at least but yeah it's so good so good yeah well, Aaron, I wish you the best of luck with, with the book and, and the fiction. And I'm sure we will talk soon. But before we go, um, I got to ask you the question I ask everyone on the podcast. So this podcast is called The Same 24 Hours, meaning we all have the same 24 hours in our day. But what we do in those 24 hours is what contributes to our greatest health, happiness and success. So I like to ask my guest, what is something that you do? on a daily basis that you think kind of gives you the, the biggest reward, the, the biggest dividends? Um, what, what is one thing that you do that contributes to your health, happiness and success?
1: Laugh. I laugh all day long. <laughs> That's good. You cannot, life is serious enough. You cannot take life seriously. And once you realize that, um, then you can actually live your life. And uh, make things happen and enjoy your life. Because um, like you said, we're all going to die someday. Right. Right. <laughs> um, and I think about that a lot just because of my dark Irish humor. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I just laugh all day long. And my laughter and humor is my greatest gift. And how I connect with other people. And how I survive in this crazy world.
0: I love it. Well, you're definitely funny. And I'm glad to laugh <laughs> with you anytime, Erin.
1: Um, yes. And let's all start the novel club, everybody. Right. The spinster novel club. I'm in. <laughs> let's will keep ourselves accountable. And then within a year, we can all have novels. I know. They will all go to Netflix. And That'd be amazing. Yes. I'm manifesting that for all of us. That's right. All right lady well thank you so much. <laughs> thank best you. Of luck. <laughs> Bye-bye.